Um, If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing this series. We're looking at um, a teaching by Jesus to his disciples and those within earshot on on oaths and promises. So um, I'll put it up on the screen here. Just a couple verses. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Um, I, we have two kids, Tegan and Davey. And Tegan is in kindergarten, and I have been told by his kindergarten teacher that he is one of the more inquisitive kids in the kindergarten class. He asks a lot of questions, and he asks us a lot of questions too. And this last, uh, this, uh, this last month, so basically we're sick. We've been sick for a month. If you shook my hand, bad news, you're sick. Um, our whole family has been sick, just one thing after another. It's a uh, vicious, ugly, disgusting cycle. And... Um, so we've been talking to our kids a lot about germs. You know, yeah, there's germs. You know, you've got what, what makes you sick. You've got these germs, these things. They're inside your body. Don't, they're tiny, you know. That, what does medicine do? It's like fighting the germs in there, and then it kind of wins, hopefully. Um, and the other day, I was talking to my son, and I was like, uh, oh, yeah, you got, you got a lot of germs inside your body. We'll probably have to open you up and look and see, you know, how bad it is, you know. And uh, I thought that was so funny. And, and, and he did that thing that he does occasionally where he took me seriously, you know. Uh, and I I realized, oh, he thinks I'm serious. And he had that like little thing and it's like he starts laughing and then it like starts to change and he real and he goes like, wait, is my dad actually going to cut me open? And, um, and Ellie was there to kind of like normalize things and say, no, just kidding. We're being silly. And then we did this whole like fake operation where I didn't really cut him open. I just tickled him. But, um, the, the thing about that that's so crazy is he, he really does trust me. It's crazy. He believes what I tell him, right? Uh, which is crazy. It should not be the case if you know me. Um, and lately over the last few months, he's been asking a lot of questions about really big things. Um, he often does it at night when it's bedtime because he knows this is his last chance. Um, he really doesn't want to go to bed. So like that's when, all, that's when his focus is right there. It's like, no, dad, I'm here. I'm you and me. Let's have some time together. Let's really have some time together. Just don't leave and turn off the light and leave me alone. So he's was, and, and he'll ask us questions. He'll ask us questions about God. He'll ask us questions about life and about death and about heaven and all these different things. And as he's asking these questions, um, it's occurred to Ellie and I um, how, how unique it feels to have your child who believes everything you tell them because you're the person who tells them about what's true and the way the world is and the way things are to have them ask you about something that big and then to go what I tell them is truth right it's a very huge responsibility to have um, and, and we, we've realized that and as we've talked about it um, it's crazy because I'm in a, a, a position where I spend a lot of time telling people things about God and about truth and about the way things are, but I know that they will take those things and they'll weigh them against all this other stuff. 
Whereas with my son, I know that he will hear it, and he's asking me to tell him about God like he's asking me to tell him about water and about food and about like how big our dog's going to get one day. And he believes what I say. And so that causes me to be very careful when I talk with him. It causes me to be very careful and to tell him what I know and to tell him what I don't know. To say, I don't know about some things. To say, we don't know about some things. And then to tell him when we do know about things. Because I know that there will be a point when he will figure that out. And he will know um, whether I did understand, whether I did know, or whether I didn't. As Christians, we're in a unique position. Because we claim to know some pretty big things. We claim to know a lot of big things, right? We claim that some things that others are often very hesitant to claim. That people just say, I don't know. We don't say that as much. <coughs> we say we know what's right and what's wrong. We say we know what's good and what's bad or evil. We say we know what light is and what darkness is. We say that we know what everything means and why everything is here and where everything came from and where everything is going. We say that we know how we should how you should live, how you should act and behave. We say that we know how you should even feel, the thoughts that you should often think, the direction that your heart ought to go and when your heart isn't going in that way. These are very big statements that people make who claim to understand these truths. The claims of Jesus are bold and so are ours. And so the question is this, do we live in a way that causes others to trust us. I think about that a lot with my children. I think, do I live in a way that causes my children to trust me when I tell them things? Do we, if we claim such big things, live in a way, live lives that exhibit things that cause others to look at them and say, I trust you. You are a trustworthy person. This was the question, the question people asked about Jesus. Can we trust him? Can we trust what he says? And this is the question that people ask of the followers of Jesus. And this is why a huge part of righteousness, real righteousness, is the ability to mean what you say and for other people to look at you and say, that person is truly trustworthy. Jesus opens this, up this passage up by saying, you have heard that it was said. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. The Old Testament is filled with examples of swearing things to God and under God. That's actually a very biblical concept. The New Testament talks about it as well. Deuteronomy 10 says, fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. We also read, and if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives. Leviticus says, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30 says, when a man takes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he has said. And also in Deuteronomy, it says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand of you. So taking oaths and making commitments is not in and of itself an unbiblical thing. And so Jesus isn't saying, don't ever do that. What Jesus is saying is, why do that? 
Why are you so prone to do that? Do you really need to swear at all about the things that you are swearing about, that people are making oaths and promises about? There's a, uh, what Jesus is ultimately talking to them about is being trustworthy. And there's a couple of components for a person who follows Jesus' teaching here on, on actually being a trustworthy person. I want to talk about what those things are. The first is this, trustworthiness is quantity and quality. Now, it says in the growth group notes, if you go through this week, it says quantity over quality, and I'll explain why that says that. But you could even look at it as just trustworthiness is quantity and quality. It comes as a result of our repeated ability to do what we say we will do consistently over time, not just a few times with really big things. That's the quality, right? I made an oath, and it was a quality oath. It was a solid oath. And if I lived up to it, then there is a sense that I can at times make, make oaths and they will qualitatively be good. But then there's the question of what about the quantity? What about all the other times that I'm just doing stuff? That I'm just doing what I simply say I'm going to do? Or I'm avoiding the things that I say I'm going to avoid? What then? That's where the quantity comes in. Jesus' teaching here is easily summed up in a way that we can remember. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no, right? Let your yes be yes, he says, and let your no be no. Up to this point, so, so um, there's, a, there's a book called the Mishnah, which is a, really a, a, a compilation of Old Testament or Jewish, really Jewish customs and laws. It had a lot of Old Testament in it. But it was very elaborated upon. It was the Old Testament plus a bunch of other stuff. A lot of what we talked about when we talk about Jewish culture and the things that people did, the way that they lived, were things that came out of the Mishnah, which was their writings, okay? And it had this very elaborate set of instructions for how to make oaths. And they were very complicated. And they were purposefully very complicated. They were deceptively complicated. So that you could say, I swear to God versus I swear by God, because those are different. And one, you actually have to do. The other one, you don't really have to do. I swear on Jerusalem. I swear facing Jerusalem. Two different things. I swear by the earth versus I swear by heaven. Two different things. I swear by the hairs on my head versus I swear by someone who I know. Two different things. Jesus is speaking to this and saying, you got to be kidding me, basically. <laughs> earth, heaven, all that, seriously, it's all the same. You swear, you swear. You don't. You don't. And what he's saying is important because at the time, up to this point, being righteous meant you pledged to do things that were seemingly impossible tasks. And I think this is often what we would associate with a religious person, somebody who pledges something very big that maybe the rest of society wouldn't pledge and then kills themselves trying to make it happen, basically says, I, I am going to fulfill that pledge. I'm going to live up to it. I'm going to be faithful to the thing that I have sworn to do, the, my oath that I've made to do. Up until this point, that's what righteousness was. That's the righteousness of the Pharisees. You pledge big things, and you do whatever it took, no matter how hard it was, to live up to those things. What Jesus is saying here, my early years as a Christian was very similar to that. And many of you might be able to relate. Many of you might still be in that place right now. I only knew how to relate to God as a Christian by promising things. 
I only knew how to say, today I'm going to cut this out. I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to start doing this tomorrow. And it was a big deal, and it always had to be bigger, and it always had to be louder, and more people always had to know about it, believe it or not. More people always had to know about it, because then I'd be accountable, and then I would be serious, and then I knew, and then God would know, and everybody would know that I meant it, and that's what it meant to be mature, when in truth, what I came to find was that that was actually an immature faith. But this was what righteousness was up until that point. Jesus instead is saying, that isn't what makes you righteous. That isn't what God is looking for. Instead, he's saying righteousness is your ability to simply fulfill the regular things you will do. He's saying, the heck with the big ones. If you were a person who actually just did all the little things in a way that was honest and trustworthy, that would be truly righteous. Your ability to simply fulfill the regular things you say you'll do, to be believed, not because of the size of your claim, but because you are the kind of person who does what they say they will do. There was a movie that came out many years ago called The Truman Show. And in this movie, Jim Carrey, right, Truman, he, he doesn't know it, but he lives on a TV show. And everyone's an actor, and his, his entire life, his, everything that he's ever done has been filmed and been broadcast 24 hours a day on a television show. Could you even imagine that? Could you imagine anyone wanting to watch a person just live their life, right? That'd be crazy. So he, he does this, and he doesn't know that he's being recorded, and it's being broadcast. Now imagine for a second that I were to tell you that tomorrow that was going to happen for you. We're going to record everything you say, everything you do, every decision you make, everything for a full day, and then we're going to wait a day, and then we're going to air it, and everyone's going to watch it in its entirety. People will watch every part of it, because we're going to put it out there for the whole world, and at least someone's going to see every single thing that you do. Would that change the way that you would live your day tomorrow? Yes. It would. What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Because someone's watching. Someone's always watching. Our Father is always watching. And so you think the big things, <coughs> that those are the impressive things, that those are the things that will make you an honest, trustworthy person. But in reality, all that says is when people are watching or when I'm telling everyone to watch and pay attention in this one situation, that that's what matters. He's like, that's not somebody who believes in God. That's not somebody who believes in the kingdom of God. That's not somebody who lives that way. No. What if you were somebody who actually just consistently did what you said you were going to do and didn't do what you said you weren't going to do because you knew that even when nobody else is looking, the heavenly father is there, the audience of one, as we say, and he is watching all of those things. Wouldn't that be an incredibly different way to live your life than someone else who doesn't see things that way? He's saying that the real, Jesus is saying that real righteousness means understanding that the Father's opinion of you is the one that matters the most and that he sees everything. The follower of Jesus can be trusted because they aren't doing things to prove a point or to impress anybody. Because in that one instance, they made the right choice when it was all on the line. There are not degrees of truthfulness. Now, 
The reality is we know this is true of people. For every hundred people who say, I will pray with you, only a, or I will pray for you, only a few probably will. But does it sound good to say, I'll pray for you? Yes. How do we say anything else, right? So here's the crazy part about this. Will this impress anyone? Probably not. Will this blow anyone's mind? Probably not. Will it amaze anyone and astound anyone? Probably not. Because the fact of the matter is, if every day you live with integrity and this kind of trustworthiness, you will not be the person that everyone is lifting up saying, here is the award, here is the recognition, here is what everyone needs to see and a person they, needs to look at, they need to look at. And I know that because as I've lived my life and I've watched other people who I think are truly trustworthy, the most consistently trustworthy, the ones who let their yes be yes and their no be no, are not the ones that we lift up and celebrate, the ones that we say, lead us and, 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 and I think that you're great and I want to put you up on a pedestal. They are, the, they are, they are not those people. And so that's the other hard part about this is what he's saying is he's saying in doing this, you're choosing to do something that again is very pleasing to your father and makes you a trustworthy person. But that probably isn't going to blow anyone's mind like some of these big oaths and commitments and promises. And that's a hard thing for us. Christians won't be known for making big statements with lots of fanfare, with betting bigger with their words. They'll be known for following through with their everyday words. And if we do this, we're living exactly as we ought to. Wouldn't it be awesome if you didn't have to care about what anyone else thought of you? Wouldn't that be great? Doesn't that sound almost like freedom? It, because it is freedom. There's freedom in this as in all the things that Jesus teaches about righteousness. But don't mistake in this because quality does matter. It's not just the quantity, it's also the quality. Promises and oaths are an important part of life. We make them for jobs, for marriages, even when parenting. I made one as I stepped into this position as a lead pastor. I made, I made a commitment, I made an oath before, before you all that I would fulfill certain duties and certain things. And many of you have done similar things for something that you've been called to do. I once read a quote by an I read a quote just recently by an author who said, my wife has been married to five different men over the course of my life. And she knew who those men were because of the commitments to her that I made. He's saying, I'm one person, but I've changed so many times in the time that we've been married that it's almost like she's been married to five different men. But what marked those? was when we got married, I became a different person. And when we had children and I committed to that, I became a different person. And maybe when I stepped into something God called me to do, I became a different person. The commitments are an important thing because they're often a way of us marking and recognizing the fact that we are now called to do something and to fulfill a vow. We just finished talking last week about marriage and divorce. And if you heard anything from that, from that sermon and that teaching of Jesus, you should know that marriage is something we ought to take much more seriously than most people do to the point to where divorce is truly much more devastating than people really think that it is. Why is this so devastating? Because as we have stood before God and taking those vows, we have said, this isn't just between me and you anymore. This is between me and you and God. And so as a result of that, the quality of that vow it is something that we want to be known for living up to, something that we want to be known for fulfilling. I think experience has shown me that most of the time that people break vows or pledges or oaths, they do so while minimizing those vows and pledges and oaths. Once you get to the end, when you're pretty much done, 
you start also going, it didn't really matter anyway. It's not really a big deal anyway. I misunderstood it. I didn't really have all the facts or whatever. And then we simply walk away. So when you say you will pledge an oath, it means utter devastation results if you break it. And we see that in scripture. (coughs) So trustworthiness is quantity and quality. It's not one or the other. And religious people were mostly known for the other. The big things that they made statements about. The other thing that it is, is the absence of manipulation. And I say this because this is exactly what oaths were being used at the time to do. So you cannot trust someone if they're manipulating you. You may not know that, but if you do now, here you go. You can't trust somebody if they're manipulating you. And believe it or not, a lot of people are manipulating you oftentimes, which is why it's so hard for us to trust people. We use oaths to play the trump card, to try to convince others that something is true, often when we cannot prove it to them otherwise. When someone doesn't believe you, you make, a bo- you make an oath. You make a promise. Sometimes you use it to win the argument or to end the debate. Hebrews 6 says, the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to any dispute. That's what an oath does. It says, okay, we're done now. He made a promise, so that's it. One author, Dallas Willard, says this. He says, it is a device, talking about oaths and vows, it is a device of manipulation designed to override the will of the ones they are focusing on, to push them aside rather than respecting them. This was what people were doing at the time. This is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders and those who were truly righteous in people's minds, at least they thought, were doing at the time, was that they were using oaths They were shouting and swearing and pledging and committing a vow that they won't ever do something. But this language was manipulation because it essentially said, I know you don't trust me. I know you don't believe me. So now you have to because I promised and I swore. And because they were religious people, they had bigger words to promise with. They had bigger things that they could swear And they tried to use that to force people to to give them credibility that they hadn't earned. My actions must speak for themselves. They must not just be loud and impressive and overpowering words. Religious people of Jesus' time were known for doing that. They weren't the ones who actually acted and lived better than others. They were the ones simply making bigger promises and swearing off more things than others. You may not know this, but deception is everywhere. People do not look as they naturally would. Politicians promise things that they have literally no way of delivering. Advertisements promise things that they cannot really give us. Some of you have even been a part of going to school expecting to get a job that someone promised you that you then found out you couldn't get or was a whole lot harder to get than the billboard said it was when you drove by and thought about it one day. I was, when I was a history major in college, I felt like I was relearning a lot of the history I had learned in elementary school. It was like, oh, no, that's not really how it happened. That's just kind of what they told you. It's actually this way. Here are the real heroes. Here are the real villains. It's all flipped around or things are different now. There's this sense that we're being deceived constantly by people who are attempting to essentially manipulate us into believing things that they want us to believe, and we do it to each other. In fact, here's the thing about dishonesty, is that we hate it so much, but we tolerate it so much. And I can't figure that out. I've been thinking about that. 
We hate being lied to. I hate, we hate being lied to. I don't know anybody who's okay being lied to, but we fully expect that we will be lied to all the time. Because untruthfulness is the most basic form of self-interest. People who are compulsive liars are people who have just figured out that one day they could just say something that gets them out of a situation. Now, they usually lose a lot of friends, they lose a lot of family, and unless they're the boss or successfully making a lot of money and people are ignoring their morals, they also do badly at their job. Because people realize over time you can't trust what they say and we do need to trust each other at some point. But compulsive liars are nothing more than people who have figured out, like, it's easy. I just lie my way out of every situation. And it's amazing how far people can get doing that. Watching my children lie is like watching somebody discover a superpower that they did not know they had. (laughs) I will look at a child, I will say, look at me, did you hit the dog? And then they'll do this. No. (laughs) And I'll go, okay. They're like, wow, really? Did that just work? I said what I didn't do. They believed it, and now I'm not in trouble. And all of a sudden, they realize, whoa, the world is my oyster. (laughs) I was at a birthday party yesterday with my kids. And if you ever want to feel bad parenting, take your children to a birthday party and watch them watch another kid open presents, okay? That will make you feel bad. You'll feel like a failure in all the ways that you've tried to parent your kid. Because they don't understand the concept, apparently. Even though we bought the kid the present, we wrapped the kid the present, the moment the kid opens it, they either want it back... Or they just, all they care about is grabbing some other present the kid got and then wanting that, right? So we're at this party, and my daughter, um, somebody opens up, he opens up these goggles, and she sees them, and she she loves them. She thinks they're so cool, and she's carrying them around, and she's getting a little too attached to them. And I'm like, okay, yeah, those are fun. Those are cool. Maybe we can ask for those for Christmas. That's cool. Okay, so we got to go pretty soon. And now I'm going to tell you this. Like, when when I talk to you... When I talk to you about my kids, you can't go talk to my kids about it, okay? Because they'll be confused. They won't know what happened, okay? That's the agreement we have to have here. If not, I'm going to stop talking about my kids. So I'm standing there, and I'm talking to the mom who's throwing the party, and I look down at my daughter, and I realize that there's this weird shape in her shirt. (laughs) And I take a picture pretty quick, because Ellie wasn't there. She totally left me, like, stranded at a kid's birthday party, single-parent thing. And, uh, and I wanted her to know what happened. Uh, so I look down, and I'm like, my daughter, who is not normally ever that quiet and never stands still, is, like, incredibly effectively stealing something from a child at the birthday party and hiding it under her shirt. She even had, like, the right shirt on for it. And so I'm like... Oh, man, okay. All right, so then I had this idea. I was like, hey, Davey, it's time to go. we got to put our jacket on. And I need both arms to put your jacket on. Because she's doing a pretty good job of, like, you know, like shifting the arm while she talks and holding it, you know, so you don't know. And then I get the one arm in the jacket, and I hold it up, and I go, okay, I need the other arm. And she's like, uh, I, uh, uh, I, need, I need this one. No, no, I need both of them. And then she starts, like, crying. 
And, um, and then we have the whole meltdown of like, of like the reveal that she was trying to steal something from a birthday party. And you could tell it had just occurred to her. I was like telling her, you don't get to keep it. It's not yours. Sorry, it's not yours. Um, and then she goes, hang on a second. If I took it, you know, but no one knew I took it, right? Victimless crime. No one knows I took it until maybe you know, this kid probably won't even pay attention to the, to the presents. You know, he got a lot of them. So she's just going to sneak it out, right? And then I just won't notice that she's playing with that very same toy at our house, right? <laughs> so this is, believe it or not, whether you have kids or not, this is a very normal thing that, humans being do, that human beings do, which is we uh, lie and cheat and steal and deceive each other, okay? And, uh, and, 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 and with kids, it's like they're really bad at it. So um, you, you kind of get to ease into dealing with it, right? By the time they become teenagers, I'm sure they're going to be way, way better at it, and I'm terrified of those years. But <laughs> we are the people, we, we are prone to this. We are constantly being, it feels like, deceived and manipulated and tricked and fooled by other people in big ways and little ways. And so imagine this. Imagine if, if the people who were following Jesus, who were truly righteous, were people who weren't trying to do that. Imagine if we were people who weren't actually trying to deceive people and weren't trying to mislead them and weren't trying to manipulate them. And the reason that I use the word manipulation is because manipulation is when you try to get someone to do something or to believe something or to think something that they would not otherwise believe. And frankly, you have not earned them believing. And we often use what we know is true. And we use the words that we have and the theology that we have and the things that we know. And we can use these things oftentimes to make vows and statements and boasts and big things as a way of trying to get other people to, to believe us or take us seriously. So we're careful to say we will do things because we intend to actually do them. If people cannot trust us without oaths and pledges and commitments, those things won't change anything. We first have to do the work of earning trust. We earn trust in the little ways. We live with integrity. We live with honesty. And we can't shortcut that process by swearing on our mother, swearing on a stack of Bibles. This is what the, the Pharisees were doing at the time. This is what Jesus is warning his disciples not to be. I don't want you as followers of mine to walk around promising things that you're not gonna fulfill. The other thing that we see here is that trustworthiness is this. It is self-awareness. This is a uniquely Christian thing. This is a uniquely Jesus-following thing. Self-awareness. Not self-absorption where all you care about is yourself and all you do is think about and study and analyze yourself, but self-awareness. I mean, everything we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount has had to do with looking inward at our hearts, saying, God, search my heart. Having humility that leads to something called repentance. So if we believe all those things and do all those things, then they ought to produce in us the ability to be a group of people and to be a person who is more self-aware than anyone else out there. That I know myself and my tendencies and what I'm prone to, and I know my limitations better probably than others would because of what Christ has told me and what I know is true of the world and what I'm living in in the flesh. It's why when we talked about sin, we said cut it off if it causes you to sin. Why? Because you're aware of what causes you to sin. You're aware of what leads to it. And not everybody always is. George MacDonald, a theologian and author, he wrote this to his son in 1878. He said, I always try, I think I do, to be truthful. All the same, I tell a great many lies. That's self-awareness. 
That is a man trying to do the right thing and wanting to do the right thing, but being aware of the fact that he is often not doing the right thing. One of the things Christians should be known for is our self-awareness. We often greatly undervalue this. We all have that friend who's just totally full of it. We all have that friend who shows up late, who doesn't do what they say they're gonna do, and the way they deal with it instead of being honest and just saying, well, yeah, okay, is they promise more. They promise more. They get more specific too, right? If you, if, you, if you like send someone a text, like, are you coming? And they say three minutes. No way it's gonna be three minutes. No way, right? They would have said 10. They would have said five. If they say three, it means it's gonna be like 15. But they're like in desperation, knowing that they're late already, they're now, they're now trying as hard as they can to promise something that they can't possibly do. There is no better example of this need for self-awareness, I think, than the Apostle Peter in his relationship with Jesus. We read about this in Matthew 26, right before the crucifixion. It says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And then later on, Jesus is arrested. The trial begins. They have all scattered. Peter has run away. He's hiding alone and someone finds him. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Oh, this is painful to read if you are at all a self-aware person. If you aren't, then you read things like this and go, man, Peter, what a mess. But if you're at all self-aware, you read it, hopefully, and go, boy, I know what that must feel like. Now, Peter's mistake was this. He was thinking that his love and devotion would somehow overrule his fear and his weakness. He thought, because of how great Jesus is, I won't be bad. And that's a mistake that's common. Jesus is so incredibly powerful and perfect that somehow I'll be better and okay and I'll be able to fulfill the promise that I made to stay faithful to him no matter what happens. But that's not true. Now, here's where it gets a little bit complicated because Jesus is, in fact, so powerful and good and perfect that he does cover over our sins and our inadequacies. That we don't actually be righteous because we're working hard and we're better and all the self-awareness and everything in the world won't lead to that. But what we must have is repentance. 
If we don't humble ourselves and come to him with repentance, then we cannot experience Jesus' power and how good he is and how wonderful he is. And this was where the disciples grew, and you saw this after Jesus was gone. The more they repented, the more they were humble, the more they they were teachable and recognized their own limitations and how great Christ was to, to come into those things in those times. Then they grew. Then they could fulfill things. To be more accurate, Peter might have said, oh, Jesus, I, you know, I really have actually failed you quite, quite a number of times. Uh, and, uh, and I have struggled to have faith, even when you were right before me, right in front of me. But I want to, and I want to know that I won't abandon you. But Peter doesn't say that. Peter believes that if he promises and if he makes an oath and if he makes a commitment that somehow that it will be true and that he will be able to fight through the temptation, the difficulty. I have a friend, I, had, I have a friend, I had a friend who um, was a youth pastor when I was a youth pastor many years ago and we were very good friends and what I liked about him was the fact that he was a very real and authentic person amidst a lot of people in ministry who I felt were being fake at the time. I felt they were kind of presenting themselves a certain way because that's what people expected pastors to look like, but not him. But he was still a very respectable guy. And so I was devastated to learn that he was having an affair at one point with, his, with the youth secretary. That he was having an affair and then it ultimately hurt his marriage and his family in an irreparable way. And I remember being so shaken by that because I thought to myself then for the first time, if he can be susceptible to that kind of temptation, if it's possible for someone like him, does that mean it's possible for someone like me? Do I live in fear constantly that that will happen? No, I wouldn't say that. But I live with a recognition of knowing that sin can grab hold of people and that the mistake we can make is thinking that just because we serve a big God that we then will be able to fulfill some unrealistic promise or or expectation without actually doing the work that it takes to fulfill that thing, which is being humble and being repentant and being teachable. It's valuable for all of us to be able to put ourselves in that place, to say, if they could stumble, I could stumble. So what does that mean for me? And how do I live my life in knowledge of the possibility of something like that? And how do I then depend on Christ to be the one who pulls me through because he is so great and he is so perfect? The more you understand about being a follower of Jesus, about the Bible, about reality through these things, the more we see that when we believe in God, when we believe that God is actually looking at us all the time and cares, that he just cares about his children and the way that they live, that that is a fundamentally different way of viewing all of reality, the whole universe, and every decision that we make from the biggest vows we make to the tiniest commitments that we make. So the tiniest decisions, so the tiniest things that we intend to do. And so if nothing else, if we seek to live our lives in a way that says, I know that God is watching, and I want to live in a way that is pleasing to him, and if no one else sees it, then that's okay. But what I do know is this, what they will see will make them trust me. And if they trust me, then they might believe me. And if they believe me, then they might have life too. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for your word, for the ministry of Jesus, because it is a reminder to us that you know the way we operate. 
Jesus knew what was going on in the hearts of his disciples and of people living in the flesh and struggling because he came down and he physically lived in flesh and he physically experienced all of the things that we experienced. That he experienced childhood and adolescence and teenage years and being a part of a family and dealing with the flesh like we all do. And so he's able to speak to true righteousness knowing what it is to be tempted and yet to not give in. Our prayer is that we would be the kind of people who in even the smallest ways consistently are simply faithful to what we say we believe. That we live what we believe in a way that causes others to trust us. That we would trust one another because of what we see. And we pray that when we do make the big oaths in life, that we would fulfill those things too and that it would give other people confidence in our ability to fulfill them because they've seen us do so in the small things, Lord. I pray that we would have the courage to move forward in this, even if it seems scary. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Last week, we talked about marriage and we talked about the oaths that we do make that are big, um, the ones that the Bible tells us to make. In fact, Scripture says that there are certain things that the only way to really move forward, like faith in Christ, like baptism, um, like marriage, is to take vows and to take oaths with every intention of living your life in such a way that you can then honor those oaths. Those oaths actually dictate the way that you live. And what we see this week and what he's talking about is that in the small things as well, that we be people who are faithful to them. The fact is there isn't an either or to it. But Jesus, in speaking to a culture that had become much more comfortable making big vows and not keeping them, rather than simply living out the small vows, um, I think there's a lot for us to, to hear in that. And so the goal is for us to be a group of people that others look at and say, I trust you. Um, that we can look at one another and say, I trust you, but that we're also, even in the little things and the small things, but that we could also be a group of people who hold one another to the commitments that we do make, who say, this was an oath that you took, a vow that you took, and, and, and our intention is to be both accountability and support and encouragement for you um, as you do that. Amen? Amen? All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.